0: Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 7 and verses 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 7 and verses 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 7 and verses 1 to 8. And one to eight. Please then hear with me the reading of God's An errant and inspired word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. from the tribe of Benjamin, were sealed. Thus far is a reading of God's holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, today we are given a perfect example uh, which supports our assertion from the beginning that the book of Revelation is not a book that is to be necessarily read in chronological order. Right? We are not to assume as we come upon the book of Revelation that everything in chapter 5 necessarily uh, comes after chapter 4, that every, all the contents of chapter 6 necessarily comes after the contents of chapter 5, or in our text today, that everything that we read in chapter 7 comes after everything that we've read in chapter 6. Because in fact, as we'll see today, this is not the case. Remember, brothers and sisters, this book was written with a great theological significance behind it. That great theological significance is that the the throne rules over all. That is the message of the book. And this message was given to the church as a blessing to the universal church, which is to suffer generation after generation until the return of Christ. And we see that not in chronological order here today, but rather we see that, and, and we'll see that moving forward even, in these seven parallel sections of the book which describe the same things, the the time of the ascension of Christ until His second coming, but from different angles and from different perspectives. And that message and that meaning that is conveyed is no different here today in chapter 7. although, instead of moving into the sixth seal and going to the seventh seal, as many of us today probably would expect as we began chapter 7, what we see is there is an, an interlude that takes place before the opening of the 6th and the 7th seal. And in fact, the 7th seal is not opened until Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. And so instead what we see here in chapter 7 is the unfolding of this new vision that John receives of that question being answered that was rhetorically asked by all of those who we read in last uh, last week we're to experience the, the judgment of God on that great day of judgment, on that final day when Christ returns, which was, for the great day of the wrath has come, who can stand? Right, that is what is being answered here in chapter 7 today. Now, we said last week that for those for whom Christ returns in judgment, the answer is, none can stand. Right? None of the ungodly will be able to stand before the Lord on that day. All will fall. This is the picture that we've seen in verses 12 to 17. But what about those who have been set apart by the Lord unto everlasting life? Right? What is to become of them during the time of tribulation? Are they going to be secure? And this chapter answers that question. And so we need to see what chapter 7 does is it really elaborates more on chapter 6. That's what chapter 7 does here. It's an elaboration upon, or an expansion upon chapter 6, in order that the church might come to understand and recognize its own destiny in this world, right? realizing that although the church must suffer, and that there are some in this world who must suffer unto death, that regardless, the church in the world so long as it remains before Christ returns is ineradicable. Right? That is, that is the message to the church. That the church is ineradicable. That the church, no matter how much the world attempts to destroy the church or remove the church, will never win. They will always fail. But the question though is then, how are we made to stand? Right? How will we be able to stand? How can we know that we will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth as Christ promised His churches back in chapter 3. Well, it's these first three verses of our text today that really answer that question for us. Look with me there once more, please. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3 once more. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so it's with these first three verses that we're going to begin our first point this morning, which we will entitle, The Seal of the Living God. Our first point is the Seal of the Living God. Now, right away, the first two words of chapter 7 is what? In verse 1. After this. Now again, I've said this before, and I'll continue to reiterate it. What it means is, after this vision, comes this vision. It doesn't mean that everything that comes after what was just said must chronologically happen in that order. But rather, after the vision I, John, received of the inauguration of the final judgment, I now, after that, have received another vision. That's what it means to say, after this. So it is not to be read chronologically that that now everything that comes after chapter 6 and in this new vision has to chronologically happen after those events. And so we need to understand that. Now, what John sees then is four angels, and we're told that they're standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, when we talk about the four corners of the earth, many of the, of the Bible's detractors right, like to point out, well, here, this demonstrates that the Bible is not inspired by God. Right, but rather, this is, this is a man-written book. Because look, they don't even know that the earth is round. They believe the earth is flat, that angels stand on the four corners of the earth. But we need to understand that this, in fact, is not what is meant at all. All of us here today commonly use phrases that we know technically aren't true, but that are, are just commonly used in our lingo and in our language. Right, we talk about the, the sun rising and the sun setting, even though... Hopefully, all of you know that neither of those things occur. And yet, even though we know it is not true, we still use that language, don't we? And that's the same thing that's happening here. Right? We're speaking about the four corners of the earth. is just, just a way of describing the entire earth, or the, or the whole earth. Right? We talk about, I will go to the ends of the earth for someone. Right? I will go to the four corners of the earth for someone. remember, Brothers and sisters, that the, the Bible is not a, a science textbook either. And so we're not to, to treat the Bible as a science textbook. Especially the book of Revelation, which is a, a book that is apocalyptic and prophetic and is highly symbolic, right? We're not to treat it as a as a science textbook, but rather we are to see that what is being described here concerns the entire earth. Right? North, south, east, west. All corners of the earth, all parts of the earth are affected here. And it is talking about God's sovereignty over the entire earth. And so what John sees then are these four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back what is described as the four winds. Now, what is the four winds of the earth? Well, I think the four winds of the earth are best understood as the four horsemen. That we read about in Zechariah chapter six and verses one to eight. Right? So the, the the four winds are really what we read about being unveiled under the first four seals. And what one of the, the the things that that should draw us to identify the four winds with the four horsemen is in particular Zechariah chapter six verse five. Now I'm going to read it to you in in two translations, and we'll see why maybe at first you might not get that. If you're reading your ESV Bible, what you'll read is 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 this. And the angel answered and said to me, These... Now he's talking about the four chariots and the riders. These are going out to the four winds after presenting themselves before the Lord. So that if you're reading your ESV translation of the Bible it seems to distinguish the four winds from the four riders, doesn't it? But most commentators, most interpreters, don't take this uh, this translation, but rather they agree mostly with the NIV or the KJV rendering of this, which identifies the four winds as the four riders. In the KJV translation, what you'll find is it says this, that the four horses are the four winds of the heaven going forth before the Lord. Okay, So we see that the four winds in Revelation 7 are the four riders. Are they are the four horsemen that are described under the unveiling or the uh, revealing of these first four seals. And we already identified in chapter 6 that the first four seals were judgments that Christ was sending upon the earth that were going to take place over the entirety of the church age until Christ returns. And what were those four judgments? Remember, they were conquest. They were the removal of peace so that uh, men would kill one another. It was famine, scarcity, economic decline and decay, as well as death, which really summed up the first three seals. Now that the four winds are, are to be taken as judgments is likewise seen in other Old Testament passages as well. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2, it is, this is declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came out from the sea. Right? So it is these four winds that are stirring up the great sea. And what comes from it? Destruction comes out of it. Right. Their mission of the four beasts are Destruction. Also in Jeremiah chapter 49, in verse 36, we read this, And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. And so here what we are to see is that these four winds were to bring the anger of God upon Elam. And so we are to see that, that these four winds are, are judgments. Right? They are God's judgment upon the world. And so taking that then to in Revelation chapter 7, what we see is that these four angels are, are at the four corners of the earth holding back God's judgment upon the earth. Right? They, are, they are holding back the harm that is going to come to all of those who dwell upon the earth. But before the angels allow them, these four riders, to go forth to to execute this judgment upon the earth, John sees another angel in verse 2. With the seal of the living God, we're told. And he calls out then to the four angels and he tells them what in verse 3? Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And so here it is. Right here we see the reason... Why they cannot yet release these judgments. Because all that was yet to do has not yet been done. God's people needed to be sealed before this harm could come upon the earth so that they might be protected. Now, if this interpretation is correct, then what does this demonstrate for us today? That what is written in chapter 7, in particular in these opening verses, has to precede, what we read about in chapter 6. It has to precede the first six seals. Why is that? Well, because what happens under the first six seals, in 1 to 4 and 6? Harm comes upon the earth. And so this has to precede the harm that is going to come upon the earth. So what is being described for us is describing events that occur prior to uh, letting the uh, the opening of these first four seals. So we start then to see the answer to uh, that question in the vision today is who is able to stand before the Lord? We see that now starting to be answered. It is God's people who will be able to stand and who will not be harmed by these judgments. Why? Because they are going to be sealed before the judgments come. But then two questions really ought to arise for us in lieu of that conclusion. And that is what? What are the two questions that ought to come immediately to our mind. Well, what is the ceiling then? What is the ceiling that we're talking about? And also, what is, what is the nature of our escape from that judgment? Because, as we read under those first four judgments, even Christians suffer under them, don't they? And so we have to ask those two questions. What is the ceiling? And what is the nature of the believer's escape from those judgments that are going to be sent upon the earth? Well, first let's answer then, what, what is this seal? And so let us think back again to, to what a seal is. We looked at this back in chapter 5 when we talked about the seals on the scroll. And so what is this sealing meant to communicate to us? Everyone here has probably sealed something in their life, right? You've sealed a package. You, you've sealed an envelope. And when you, you, know, you licked it and you closed it shut, maybe you put a stamp over it. And what was the purpose of doing that? Why did you do it? Why did you seal it shut? I think we could say, in particular, two reasons maybe. The first reason is to protect what is inside of that envelope or to protect what is inside of that box from being tampered with or from being meddled with. And this is, in fact, the, the way the Scripture uses this language of sealing as well. We find this in Matthew 27 and verse 66. In Matthew 27, verse 66, if you recall... This is when Jesus is placed into the tomb. And out of concern that someone might come and and take him out of the tomb, what happens? What are we told? In verse 66, they went out and made the tomb secure by sealing it and setting a guard in front of it. Right? And so a seal is something that protects in order that something might not be tampered with. Right? The, The stone of the tomb was sealed. A guard was put in front of it so that it would be protected. That what was inside of that which was sealed could not be tampered with. And so that is that is one of uh, the things that a sealing communicates to us. Secondly, in ancient times, what happened when you, when you sealed something, when you sealed a letter? You used wax. Or you poured wax and you had some uh, signet that you impressed upon the wax. And what did that do? What did that do? It identified right whose imprint this was. Right, it, it testified to the the genuine nature of this letter. Right, it, it belonged to to this person. It came from this person. It, it distinguished that letter as as a genuine letter from them. Now, if we just sit back and think for a moment, then who does these things in the life of the believer today? Right, who protects us and who authenticates us as? as genuine believers in the Lord. Well, there's only one. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is the seal of the living God that the servants need before the tribulation comes so that we might persevere until the end. Now you might ask, well, well, from our text, where do you come up with the Spirit being the seal? Well, let's look at a, a couple places That helps us in our text to be able to identify the Spirit as the seal. So if you'd like to, you can turn with me. Otherwise, just listen to me as I read. But the first text is Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Here we read this. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. Look at just a few chapters over. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Paul again says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And so we see that the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament is identified as the seal of the believer. Now let me ask you then, is, is the Holy Spirit a, a physical, literal seal that is going to be placed upon our foreheads? Of course not. Of course not. And we don't even understand similar language to be saying that same type of thing. And So why would we do that in a highly symbolic book like the book of Revelation? I mean, just think to... Uh, deuteronomy chapter 6. deuteronomy That's not a figurative book, is it? And yet there in chapter 6, the Israelites are told right, to, they're to love the Lord their God with all heart, soul, mind and strength. They right? love their neighbor as their self. They're to, They're to walk within their homes right? constantly declaring the, the law of God and teaching God's law to their children. And in verse 8, this is what we are told. You shall bind them, that is the law, as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. Now, were they actually bound upon their hand? Were they actually frontlets upon their eyes? Well, no. This is figurative language mean, meant to communicate something to us. Right? It's figurative language meant to communicate God's sovereignty over the thoughts and over the, the deeds and the actions of the Israelites. Right? That is what that figurative language is meant to communicate. Think even about something like circumcision. Paul can say that circumcision is nothing. Right? Physical circumcision is nothing. But the true circumcision is what? Is of the heart. It is of the heart. Again, figurative language to describe a spiritual reality. And we need to understand that's the same thing that is being uh, done here as well as we are to understand the sealing of our foreheads right? as God's servants, we are to understand it in a figurative sense just like we would in these other places. For in regeneration, right, God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer. He gives to us a new heart, a, a new will, a new intellect, enabling us now to exercise faith and enabling us to now live in obedience to God. Right? That is the seal. Right? Being made in air being brought into the New Covenant, right? Being uh, uh, having God's name inscribed upon uh, both heart and mind. right? That is what this, this sealing is. And because you have the seal, then what? Well, it's the Holy Spirit then who enables you to persevere in the midst of trial. It is the Holy Spirit who testifies to your spirit that you are children of God. It is the Holy Spirit living inside of you who applies the benefits of Christ to you. It is the Holy Spirit who, in our weakness, stirs us up to prayer. It is the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the promises of God. It is the Holy Spirit who who comforts us with the Word of God, even as He does today, as you sit here and you hear God's Word proclaimed to you. And so the Spirit, brothers and sisters, we need to see, is the seal. The Spirit is the seal. but, But what does He seal us from? Where does He seal us from? Because the saints do suffer in this life, don't they? We see that under seals 1 to 4 and in seal 6. And so what we need to see is that the nature of the seal is spiritual then. We see that the churches in Asia Minor, these seven churches, were suffering. But their ability to hold fast to the name of Christ and not compromise by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit showed and demonstrated that they were gods, that they belonged to God, that they were sealed by God. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He provides spiritual protection, not physical. Spiritual protection for God's people. And this is why Jesus then can say without hesitation, in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He can say that. Boldly declare it because He knows that His Spirit, right, the Spirit of the living God, would keep the church from faltering in the midst of trial. That while we are weak in our flesh, the Spirit would strengthen our souls. That it would be the Holy Spirit who would continually work inside of us to will and to work after the good pleasure of God. This is why the church will never be extinguished. This is why Jesus can say that He will never lose any for whom the Father has given to Him. Because all believers, according to the eternal decree of God, have been sealed or will be sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is what? A guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. It is the Holy Spirit who will protect you here on earth. It is the Holy Spirit who likewise authenticates the genuine nature of your faith. It is an inward testimony to you of the genuine character of your faith. But brothers and sisters, and let us see. This is why it is so important then to not grieve the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is the author of your new birth. The Holy Spirit is your companion who who dwells with you and who remains with you throughout the course of your life. See what you do when you sin against Him. You, You drive Him away. Right? The Holy Spirit provides joy and peace and assurance. But when you sin against Him, all you do is you drive away that joy. You drive away that peace. You drive away that assurance. And so we are not to offend the Spirit by our filthy language. We are not to offend the Spirit by our ungodly thoughts. We are not to offend the Spirit by our sinful living. Right? The Spirit made you a servant of God. I remember John 3.8 just as the wind blows wherever it chooses and pleases, so too does the Spirit. And if you are a believer, the Spirit has, has blown upon you. He has made you a servant of God. So don't go back to being a servant of the devil. And yet it is baffling, isn't it, that so many who profess to be Christians go back to being servants of the devil, whom we know does not have our, our good in mind. Right? His intention in everything that He tempts us to do is to destroy us. It is the Holy Spirit who always has our good in mind, who is always there to to strengthen the weary souls of the saints. This is why Paul can say, those who live according to the flesh, what are you to do? You are to set your minds on the things above. Because to set our minds on the flesh, to set your minds on the things of earth is what? It is death. It is death. But to set your minds on things that are above, to set your mind upon the Spirit, is life and peace. And if the Spirit is dwelling inside of you, then you assuredly will be putting to death the deeds of the body because you love life rather than death. Now this leads us then into our second and our final point this morning, which is the identity of the sealed. Now the seal of the living God, we said, is the Holy Spirit, But now we must ask, who specifically or who in particular are these 144,000 who are sealed? So for that, please look with me once more to our text, starting in verse (coughs) 4. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and the tribe of Benjamin. All of these were sealed, we are told. Now, there are a number of different interpretations out there of who these 144,000 are. Right? One of those interpretations is that these are ethnic Israelites. These are ethnic, ethnic Israelites. You, those who believe this are generally what we would call futurists, and they believe that what is being described is concerns some future uh, point in the, in the, in the, in the, right before kind of the return of Christ when the church is, has been raptured from the earth. And so it's going to be these ethnic Israelites who come to faith in Christ and who witness for Him on earth after the church has been raptured. Right? That, is, that is one view of who this 144,000 are there. They're ethnic Israelites from these 12 tribes. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that the 144,000 is a, is a literal 144,000 of them, of Jehovah's Witnesses. But as with most numbers in the book of Revelation, uh, what I would like us to uh, subscribe to and to see is that uh, this number, like most of those numbers, are, are to be taken figuratively and not literally. And when we understand the theological significance of the number, I think it will be easier then for us to identify uh, who this number describes. But before doing that, I first want to kind of show us how that, that popular American evangelical literal interpretation of the text cannot actually stand up to the text today. And why then it's much easier and in, in much, uh, much more faithful to the text to actually read this figuratively instead of literally. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that this list that we have in Revelation chapter 7 is to be found nowhere else in Scripture. That's the first thing. This list is found nowhere else in Scripture. The second thing. Rarely do you ever see Judah at the front of the list. But here in our text today, we have Judah at the front of the list. Now, for those who take it figuratively, this is great for us because we understand that it has great theological, theological significance that Judah is first or on top of the list here. Because why? Because Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah. And so it's the tribe of Judah that is given preeminence amongst the people of God. That's why Judah is first here. And it's listed first, fulfilling what was spoken of in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Where if you recall there, Jacob blesses each of his sons. And in 49, verse 8, he says this, Your brothers, speaking to Judah, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That's what we have here, as the tribe of Judah sits atop the list. Sits atop the lists of all the tribes. Another reason why we are not to take this list literally is because the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim are omitted from it. And so, how can this be a literal list of the twelve tribes when it's missing two of the tribes? Right? How can this be describing the literal restoration of the tribes of Israel if it omits Dan and Ephraim? Here's another interesting kind of tidbit that you can ask the literal interpreter. In Ezekiel chapter 48, we likewise have another list. And in Ezekiel, what do they believe that text is describing? The the future temple that's going to be built. Do you want to know whose names, though, is on the list in Ezekiel 48? Dan and Ephraim. Why is it not on the list in Revelation chapter 7? Because it's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken figuratively. It's meant to communicate something of theological, theological significance to us. Not only that, Manasseh's tribe is listed twice here. Who's Manasseh's father? Joseph. You have Joseph and Manasseh both listed. And so again, we see this isn't meant to be a literal list. This is a list that has great theological significance. Do you want to know why Dan and Ephraim are omitted? It's because Jeroboam's golden calf was erected in Dan and Ephraim. And so it was those two tribes that led Israel into idolatry. And so they're admitted for the list teaching us what? That no idolatry will enter the kingdom of God. For those who take this figuratively, it's, it's very easy to understand what's going on here. We don't have to do some sort of theological gymnastics in order to, to make this list mean a, a, something literal. It doesn't. It's, it's a figurative list. It's, it's teaching us something. Also, we're not to take this list literally Because as John writes this, the literal 12 tribes of Israel don't even exist. They're gone, they're destroyed, they're done with. And so if you believe that God is going to, at some future period of time, revive the 12 tribes, which aren't even the 12 tribes, then you likewise have to believe He's going to revive all of Israel's enemies as well in the book of Revelation. Which nobody believes. And so these are just a, a few reasons why the literal approach fails and should not be adopted. And instead, there are a, a whole host of additional reasons why the figurative approach should be the approach that we use. Uh, we can go back to the order of the list once more as another reason. Right? Not only is Judah first, but also, what else is true about the list? Jacob's sons from his concubines... Are actually listed before his sons through legitimate marriage. Right? Look here. We have, after Judah and Reuben, you get Gad, Asher, and Naphtali all born to concubines. Right? They are inserted before the legitimate sons of Jacob. Why? To signify to us the inclusion of the Gentiles as legitimate sons of God now. Again. Do you see the theological significance of this list and what it is trying to teach us? In addition, we're not to read it literally, but figuratively, because to read it literally is to not read it Christocentrically, but rather it's to read the, the Bible and this text really Israel-centrically. And it's then to miss the, the whole point of what Christ came and accomplished, which Paul so powerfully declares in Ephesians 2. What does he say there? that Christ came and broke down the dividing wall, making for Himself one new man and not two. It fails to understand Paul's argument, the literal interpretation. In the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 28-29, to where Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Do we see, brothers and sisters, its never it was not, never a matter of who you physically descended from, but who you spiritually descend from. Right? Romans 11. You have the one olive tree composed of what? Both Jew and Gentile. All those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this one new people is made up of everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We need to see this. True Israel, and I hope this isn't a shock to anybody, true Israel was only ever comprised or composed of spiritual Israelites even in the Old Testament. I'll say that once more. True Israel was only ever composed of spiritual Israelites, even in the Old Testament. I give you an example of what I mean Genesis chapter seventeen in Genesis chapter seventeen, we read this and starting in uh, verse eighteen genesis seventeen Verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Spiritual covenant was made with Isaac. As for Ishmael in verse 20, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. True Israel, even in the Old Testament, was always only composed of spiritual Israelites. And who do we belong to, brothers and sisters? Well, we can look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. What do we read here? Galatians chapter 4. Starting in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are what? Are children of the promise. You, brothers, belong to spiritual Israel. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. You see, brothers and sisters, this is why Paul can say in Philippians 3 that Gentiles are the true circumcision. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 3 of unbelieving Jews that they are dogs who mutilate their flesh. True Israel from Old Testament to New Testament has always and only been spiritual Israelites And they are spiritual Israelites through faith in the Messiah, right? It's about are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, you belong to the true Israel of God, right? There is children of the flesh, as Paul just said, and children of the spirit. And as Paul says in Galatians six sixteen, right? All who by faith believe in Christ belong to the Israel of. God, And so we can consistently then read the text. We see that the, the list is figurative, but so too then is the number as well. right? The list is figurative, so too is the number. The, the number, the 144,000, is simply meant to convey to us the entirety of believers on earth right, during the, the church age. That's all it's meant to communicate to us. So the, the 144,000 is, is a symbolic number. Right, 12 times 12. Which corresponds to what? Revelation 21? Where you have the 12 gates of Israel and the the 12 foundations for the apostles? Which make up what? In the new heavens and the new earth? The redeemed church? And so we see that this is what this number corresponds to as well. It's multiplied by a thousand. A thousand is a number of completeness and to signify the, the great multitude of God's people. Right? But this is meant to be a comfort to the saints that as Christ is going to open these four seals, as the angels are going to let this judgment come upon the earth, that you can know that if you have been sealed by the living God, you will be spiritually secure through it all. Right? That is the comfort that is meant to be conveyed to the church in our text. Right? It comforts the church to know that, that God knows who is His. He has numbered every single one of you. That He has sent His Spirit to indwell you that is your guarantee of your heavenly inheritance. He has sent His Spirit who has began a good work in you and will bring it towards its completion. This is the difference though, brothers and sisters, that we need to see between the seal that God places on the believer and the mark of the beast. Right? This is a difference we need to see. The mark of the beast, there is no protection. The mark of the beast offers you no promises. In fact, those we see who are not sealed don't receive protection. In fact, the judgments of God are poured out upon them in their fullness. And they are subject to the judgments of God as He removes His restraining grace as they continue to sin against Him and to persecute the church. But this protection that God supplies, he, He will supply to His church throughout the entire church age. And He will continue to supply this to His church even at the final judgment, so that He will not allow any of us to lose our salvation. He will not allow any of us to apostatize from the faith. For God and He alone is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before His throne. And knowledge of that, right? knowledge of this reality, are to help us to think about how we are to live in the midst of trial and suffering. These judgments that come upon the earth are only testimonies to the ungodly of the greater judgment that they will incur at the final coming of Christ. But for us, these judgments serve a different purpose. So how are we to think about them? Well, Charles Spurgeon eloquently summarizes what trials to the Christian are to be in the hostile world that we live in. And he says this, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine. reproach is honor, and death his gain. Right? Knowledge of God's plan for the church should help us, shouldn't it to, to then bear up under whatever trials and tribulations come our way, our way faithfully, right knowing. That God is working all these things out for our good, not for evil. And so we can have sure confidence that because of Christ's work, we are already victorious in Christ. That the gates of hell most assuredly will not prevail against us. And so just as these words were meant to encourage those saints in the first century that they might live boldly in their life unto death, I pray, brothers and sisters, that it does that exact same thing for us. fully believing that God knows you if you are His, and that He has sent His seal upon you to protect you and to authenticate you in the genuineness of your faith. And so I ask you then here today as we draw to a close, do you have the Spirit of the living God living inside of you? Because outward religion does you no good. It is inward religion that counts. Right, An inward religion whose author and finisher is Jesus Christ. And so, do you likewise have Christ? Or do you have Christ? Because if you have Christ, then you there is no need to fear. For the Spirit is your spiritual protection in the midst of trials. He's your inward testimony to the authenticity and genuine nature of your faith. The Holy Spirit now marks you out no longer as a child of Adam, but now He marks you out as a child of of the living God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the, the truthfulness of Your Word. We thank You, Father, for the, the joy that Your Word brings to the saints who are suffering in this hostile world. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see trials and tribulations that come our way, not as, as ill, but as medicine that you have sent for our good and not for evil. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a proper perspective of our lives and, and what is important in our life. We ask, Lord, that you, would, that you would help us to be those who do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, for the Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of us. And so, cause us, Lord, to be those who, who love the presence of the Spirit and who love to dwell in communion with them. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to to be led by the Spirit, to walk after the Spirit, to think about the things of the Spirit and not the flesh. And we come before you asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.